Thank you for tuning in to Cobblestone Community Church today. We hope this message blesses you. If you need prayer for anything, please email us at prayer at cobblestonechurch.com. Now here's the message. Today, I want to talk about uh, false teaching, right? Teaching about false teaching is kind of a funny thing to do. Uh, but um, I really felt like that's what the Lord had for us today. Uh, so why, why talk about false teaching? Uh, so I want to tell you a little story and kind of how I got to uh, this point here. But a while back, my wife and I were meeting with a friend of ours who had come to believe, uh, honestly, some kind of funny ideas, basically, uh, about some biblical things. And, uh, and, our, and this was a wonderful, lovely person who's a genuine believer whom we love very much. Uh, so that's not, you know, I'm not trying to put her down in any way. Uh, but in conversation with her, uh, as we were talking to her, she said, you know, I don't even think that you can know what the truth is about X, Y, and Z. Uh, I don't think it's clear. I think there's no way to know. And when she said that, I thought, like, this is worse than I thought. You know, I was kind of taken back because here's someone whom we love and enjoy being around, who had listened and read some books that were unbiblical and had, was just so completely confused that she was like, there's no way to know what's right and what's wrong about this, this topic. And um, honestly, I felt kind of like, uh, what am I going to say next? What did I get myself into? And I was getting kind of nervous. But thankfully, my wife was there. So she uh, saved us. And she said, well, maybe what we need to do is learn about false teaching and what false teaching is. Uh, and that person was like, okay, I'm willing to do that. And I was like, praise God. You know, because my wife kind of saved me in that moment. And uh, really what that was was a word of wisdom from the Lord. You know, it's one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He gives you wisdom for difficult situations. It's called the word of wisdom. So the Lord gave her a word of wisdom, praise the Lord. And then she kind of looked at me and she's like, well, that's your job. You need to go find some false teaching stuff and then teach her about it. And uh, I tried and, you know, funny thing, just being completely transparent, my wife said, you should just read through the New Testament, pick out all the passages, and we should read it together. And I was like, that is way too much work. I do not want to do that. Uh, and I didn't. So I spent about a week looking for something that was already done. And there's plenty of stuff out there, but none of it settled with me. I didn't like any of it. I mean, I asked Andrew, and he couldn't help me. I mean, I asked other people. Like, it was like there was no answer anywhere. I thought it was so weird. So I decided to listen to my wife like I should have. And uh, I just I skimmed through the New Testament as fast as I could, which wasn't very fast. And I just started picking out the passages that addressed false teaching. And by false teaching, I also mean like false apostles, false prophets, all of that. I'm just clumping it all together. And, you know, just again, being completely transparent, I, I thought, I may mean, realize now I kind of went into it and a little bit cocky because I was like, I can think of about five, I'll probably find five others and then we'll be done. Well, it was more like 50 or 60 or 70. I did not realize how much content there was in the New Testament about 
how to deal with false teaching. What do you do? How do you recognize it? What are the kind of the major types of false teaching that come in the church? In fact, uh, I discovered that 22 out of the 27 books of the New Testament address false teaching in some way. And some of those five are like the really, really tiny ones uh, that don't have a lot of content in them anyways. Uh, and every author of the New Testament except James addresses this topic. So clearly, this was important to the apostles. It was important to Jesus that Jesus' followers understand uh, how to recognize and deal with false teaching. Uh, so that is why we're doing this today. It's, it should be like regular part of discipleship. It should just be regular part of our training. Not that a 30 to 45 minute sermon can do uh, everything, but you know, it's, it's a start and it's something that the Lord laid on my heart for us today. Now, in talking about false teaching, uh, that can be a really negative topic. And I promise that this will not be all negative. We're gonna end the sermon here very positive, but I just kind of want you guys to follow along with me. Now, we are on a reading plan. So are we taking a pause from the reading plan? Not really because the reading plan this week actually addressed false teaching, and I'm gonna talk about that passage. But my goal here, I'm really gonna talk about this topically. I'm going to mention several passages throughout the New Testament, including our reading plan for this week to address this issue. And I would like to start in Mark chapter four, verse 24, okay? Um, I know I just mentioned a little bit of why it's important to understand, uh, false teaching, what it is, how to recognize it, how to deal with it. But I want to talk about a couple other reasons why it's important, okay? Mark 4, Jesus said, uh, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it'll be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So what is Jesus saying here? He's saying, pay attention to what you hear, right? So I like to think that we have two main gates into our hearts and minds, our eye gates, right? And our ear gates, we have two of each, right? Or however you want to number it, who cares? Anyways, uh, what Jesus is saying here, you have to be careful to what you hear, Okay. Now, what Jesus is saying is, don't just listen to people who agree with you. That is not what he is saying. What he is saying is, you shouldn't just accept things that you hear, right? You should analyze. You should think critically, but not with a mean spirit. You should, everything that you hear, because you love truth, you should think about what you're listening, and you should not consume things that you know are in opposition to the scriptures. Why? Because Jesus says, if you are careful with what you hear, if you value what you allow to enter your mind, if you value what you allow to enter your heart, then more will be given. What's this more? More revelation of who God is. More understanding of the scripture. If you are faithful with little, he will give you much. But then what does he say next? This is the part that's scary. Right? This is Jesus, the kindest person in the world. He's saying this. From the one, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. What Jesus is saying, if you're really like totally carefree, if you don't pay attention to what you listen, 
If you're not careful with your gates of what you allow in your mind and your heart, even the revelation that you already have, you can lose it. And many of us who have been walking with the Lord for a long time, we've known people who used to be walking on fire for the Lord, but they're not careful, right? And then what happens, even the things that they knew were true, that they believed from the Lord, they give up on those things because they're not careful with what they allow in their minds and in their hearts, right? This is a true blessing and a warning. If you're careful, I'll give you more. If you're not careful, I'm going to take away what you have because you don't value it, right? So this is why it's important to understand about false teaching. Another reason why it's important to understand um, what false teaching is is because the Bible makes very clear it's, it's, uh, it's undeniable that deception is going to increase, not decrease. See, we live in a culture where we all think that we are like evolving and getting better, right? Uh, we're, we're becoming more enlightened. It's, the Bible says the opposite thing. It says that pride makes you think you're becoming more and more enlightened when actually you're becoming more and more deceived, Right, so let's look at a couple of verses that address that issue. 2 Timothy 3, verse 13. Paul said to Timothy, evil people and imposters, right? So these are your false teachers, your imposters. They will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Right, so no culture on earth at any time in human history is going to evolve. That is not what happens to human beings. Human beings can be redeemed by the blood of Jesus. But without that, things do and will decay. That's what happens. And we, in our nation, we're not exempt from that. Right? There's no amount of education that can fix that problem. Um, Jesus also mentioned that the closer that we get to his return, the, uh, the more deception that will be, the bigger an issue that it will be. So if we look at Matthew 24, verse, starting at verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Right? So they're like, okay, teach us about the tribulation, eschatology, the end times. What's going to happen? Right? Uh, and Jesus' Jesus's answer is very, very interesting because he doesn't say, store food and guns. Right? That's not what he says. That's not how, I mean, if you want to do that, okay, that's fine. But biblically, that is not how we get ready for Jesus' return right? What does Jesus says here? And he answered them, see that no one leads you astray. One of the premier things that will happen the closer we get to the Lord's return is just the noise and the voices and the arguments that are going to try to lead the church astray, right? That's how we prepare for Jesus' return. One of the ways, right? There's no amount of food that's going to protect you from false teaching, right? There's no amount of guns that's going to protect you from false teaching. That's not how we prepare for Jesus' return. Okay, so now that we know why it's important, what are some general characteristics of false teachers? Like, how can we recognize it? 
them, okay? Now, one thing that, I mean, there are many, there are several, okay, passages in the New Testament that address this issue, but one thing that I encounter just from talking with friends and people over and over again is the issue that this guy or this gal, they seem like they're really teaching the Bible, right? They seem like they really love Jesus. So how do I know? Well, one thing that we need to remember is that the appearance of the messenger does not automatically give credibility to the message, okay? So as an elder here, and I know that I speak for all the elders, we do not want you guys to automatically believe anything that comes out of this pulpit, right? We want you guys to think about things, to analyze them, and make sure that everything that we say agrees with the whole message of Scripture, why do I say the whole message of Scripture? When Jesus was tempted in Matthew chapter 4, which I'm not going to read, the devil tempts Jesus with the Bible. Quoting the Bible is actually not that special. The devil does it, right? So just because somebody quotes a verse, and it seems like they're making a good point, that doesn't mean anything in and of itself, right? So what happens there is Jesus, the devil takes Jesus up on a mountain and he says, throw yourself on the mountain. Psalm 91 says that if you uh, jump off a cliff, God's angels are going to pick you up. And guess what? That is what the verse says, right? The devil wasn't lying about what the verse says. But what Jesus did is he said, the Bible also says, don't test God. Right? So you need to take the whole scripture into consideration because anybody, even the devil, can quote a verse and make you jump off a cliff. Right? Does that mean that we should do it? No. Right? So we need to take the whole counsel of scripture. So again, uh, the appearance of the messenger does not give credibility to the message, to the content of what they're saying. In fact, false teachers are convincing if they weren't convincing, they wouldn't be good false teachers. They wouldn't be effective, okay? Uh, so let's look at a few verses uh, to uh, describe that. I think the next one I had was 2 Corinthians 11, uh, starting at verse 13, okay? Paul says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Again, a false teacher is not going to show up saying, I'm a false teacher. It wouldn't work in their favor, right? That they're not going to accomplish their goal uh, if they do that. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Again, guys... Just because somebody quotes a couple verses, that's, that's not that special, okay? And I don't say that in a mean way. We need to always analyze things through all of Scripture, okay? Uh, and then, again, there's a passage in our, uh, our reading from this week that also addresses the issue. So if we look at Acts 20, verse 28. So Acts 20, verse 28. Paul said, so what's happening here is Paul is about to leave 
uh, Ephesus, okay, which is a city that he lived on for, I think, three years. He established a church there and then chose elders to lead that church. So he was meeting with the elders uh, and believing here that he was probably never going to see them again. He was probably never going to set foot on Ephesus again. What does he tell them? What's his last message to the leaders of the church that he established? He says, says several things, but one of the things that he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Now, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So Paul is saying here, it is a guarantee that false teaching will come against the church in Ephesus. And here's the shocking part. And to me, this really is shocking. Paul says, even among yourselves. So he is talking to a group of elders that he trained up, that were chosen. He just said, by the Holy Spirit. He says, even among you that I trained, you who were chosen by the Holy Spirit. He says, um, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. Right? That's, that's a serious thing. That's a shocking thing. And we're going to talk about why the Lord allows that to happen in just a second, okay? But let's finish reading this. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears, okay? Now, this is a little bit of a bunny trail here, but um, I kind of like that Paul says with tears there. I know that a lot of the elders here, myself included, cry a lot, okay? Uh, and we're in good company here, okay? Like, it's totally biblical, all right? So Paul was a total crier. He just said right here, he cried for three years straight, okay? So there you go. Um, so anyways, to the more serious subject here, uh, why does the Lord allow that, right? So imagine somebody who's an elder of a church evangelizes you, disciples you, grows you in the faith, and then they turn against the Lord. Why does God do that? Why does the Holy Spirit choose somebody who will do that in the future to be an elder of a church? And there's many answers, I think, but I think this is the main one. And I'm not going to read the passage, but I think the answer to this is actually in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 13, the first four verses there. But what, the, what Moses tells the Israelites is he says, there will be false prophets, and they're actually going to do signs and wonders. And what they're going to try to do is lead you away from the first and the greatest commandment, which is to love the Lord with all your heart, right? And so here's what I'm trying to say. When the pressure of false teaching comes, that is a pressure on the church to see what's really in our hearts. That's what tests always are biblically. They make what's in here come out, right? And for none of us, not everything that comes out is good, right? I've never met anybody who responds to tests perfectly. There's always something not good that comes out, but then it reveals it and you deal with it. But if the test of false teaching were to come to cobblestone, 
right? And it creates friction in the church, and it creates division in the church, and there's pressure. How would I respond? How would you respond? Who's your faith rested on? Is it me? Is it Jeremiah? Is it Andrew? Is it John? Or do you love Jesus because you love Jesus? Right? That's what the test and the pressure of false teaching does. It creates pressure, and it makes you ask, why am I doing this? That's what all a church hurt really does. It makes you ask, why am I doing this? And you have to figure out what the answer is. Is it because you love Jesus? If it's not, you're not going to stand. And the, the test is a blessing because we all see pockets in which we can't answer that question honestly like that. But then we can fix it. Okay? But that's, I think, the main reason why the Lord allows false teaching to arise within the church. We need that pressure. We have to ask that question, why are we doing this? And we have to figure out how we want to answer that question. Now that we know kind of why and the general characteristics of false teaching, I want to talk about three major categories that at least I see in the New Testament when it comes to false teaching. Okay? I call them, because I think it sounds nice, false righteousness, false grace, and false religion. Okay? So I'm just going to go through these real fast, uh, just because we don't have tons of time. But false righteousness is what a lot of people call legalism. Okay? So this is a claim that certain religious observances have to be observed in order for you to gain a better standing with God, in order for God to like you more, to make you a better Christian, things like that. Okay, so if we look at Matthew 15, verse 1 and 2. Uh, then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. So they're asking Jesus, hey, you guys aren't washing your hands before you eat, right? They're breaking, what do they say, the tradition of the elders. This is how we've always been raised. Our, why aren't you doing things the way that we've always done things? You're breaking our tradition, right? So skip down to verse 8. Um, Jesus said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Why? This is a key phrase here. Teaching us doctrines, the commandments of men. You know, I was a church kid. Uh, I come from lots of people in my family are involved in ministry. So I like spent my whole life in church, especially growing up. And I've moved around a lot and I've been to a lot of churches. And I have never seen a church in which people don't get upset when there's a change, right? Because we want things to be done the way they've always been done. And um, sometimes there's a lot of anger behind that. And in all frankness and all love, I want to say this clearly, that is a spirit of legalism, a spirit of false righteousness. Because what false righteousness is, we take, here's biblical commands, and then here's our traditions, Here's uh, the way we like things to be done, which are not necessarily wrong, but when we give them so much, much value that we teach them as doctrine, 
are things that we can't let go, are things that have to be done, we are embracing false righteousness. We are embracing a spirit of legalism, right? Um, so a couple of examples uh, just from my own personal life. I don't like to watch horror movies, okay? I don't like to watch any scary movie. I have a deep conviction about that. It's not because they just scare me, because they do. Uh, but I have a lot of conviction that I don't think it's good, right? But here's the thing. That is a conviction. I don't teach that as doctrine. I don't go around saying Christians should never watch scary movies. It is a conviction I have. If you ask me about it, I can tell you all about it, okay? But I don't teach that as doctrine. I, as far as I can tell, don't criticize people who do, nor do I think I'm a better Christian because I don't do that, okay? Um, another thing is I don't like Advent calendars, okay? Uh, I, anything liturgical, I have like an imaginary allergy against, okay? I like, I dislike all liturgical things with a passion, okay? But a lot of people really like them, and that's okay, right? But those things are not biblical commands, right? We need to keep our convictions and our traditions in their proper place as personal convictions and personal preferences, right? They are not the doctrines of men. All right, so moving on to false grace, okay? Uh, there's two types, I think, of false grace in the Bible. Uh, there's the first false grace that I think is teaching that denies the role of suffering in a believer's life. And the second one uh, is just a false grace that says that sin isn't really sin, Okay, so let's look at first uh, the false grace that denies the role of trials in the Christian's life. So Philippians 3, verse 17 through 19, okay, Paul says, uh, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have told, often told you, and how, or... Oh, I can't read this right. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, there's Paul crying again, right? He was, he was just sobbing all the time. <laughs> Anyways, uh, walk as enemies of what? The cross of Christ, okay? Their end is their destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with their minds set on earthly things. So you see, there's a lot of teaching that says it's all blessing, favor, and increase all the time, right? All the promises, they're all about everything getting better and better and better. And if anything happens that's negative, that's always the devil, right? Uh, which it might be, but the Bible makes it very clear that there's no Christianity without suffering, right? A Christian who's not carrying their cross is not following Jesus, okay? Um, and there's a verse, I think, that says that very clearly. Uh, it's a very helpful verse, even though, honestly, I kind of hate it because it's so clear, right, when it comes to suffering. Okay, if we look at Revelation 1, verse 9. Uh, this is John, Apostle John, in the New Testament, in heaven, seeing visions of Jesus, Right? So heaven, where everything's perfect and good all the time. Here's what John says. 
And I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So John tells us there are three things in Jesus for the believers. What's the first one? Tribulation. It's in Jesus. Hard to deny that tribulation doesn't come from the Lord sometimes. Because it's in Jesus, in heaven. The second one is the kingdom. That's the good stuff that we want. But then the third one, patient endurance. There is no discipleship without these three things. There really isn't. Right? I call this the kingdom sandwich. The bread isn't really the main part of the sandwich, but it holds the stuff together. So you have tribulation on one side, patient endurance on the other. But then you, we get the kingdom in the middle. But you, you don't get the kingdom without the tribulation and without the patience and patient endurance. And if, any, if you ever hear any teaching of anybody that promises you kingdom without tribulation and without patient endurance, they're wrong. It's just the plain truth. They're not right. It's unbiblical. The next kind of false grace is false grace that promotes sensuality, uh, rebellion to authority, and adherence to idolatry. Okay, so what do I mean by sensuality? So biblically, sensuality is two things, right? It's relaxing biblical standards on immorality and substance abuse. Okay, so when the Bible says that word sensuality, and you can track it in the New Testament, track that word, don't just believe me, sensuality, it's very clear. It's almost always addressing these two things, immorality, sexual immorality, and substance abuse, especially drunkenness, okay? So let's look at 2 Peter 2, starting at verse 1, okay? So Peter says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And now, what are they teaching? And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. What does he mean by the way of truth will be blasphemed? He's saying that people who teach biblical self-control, not legalism, but biblical self-control, they're going to be, oh, those people are legalistic. They're just like Pharisees. They're medieval, right? They're, they're trying to make you proud and arrogant against biblical truth so that you can blaspheme it feeling puffed up to stand up against biblical teachings about self-control. And what does Peter say next? And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. So greed here, yes, financial greed, but I also think there's social greed, right? Because we all like it when people agree with us. And we, we, we can make an argument to change someone's mind. That makes you feel good. Right? And false teachers have this correct characteristic. They're greedy for followers because it feeds their pride. So they exploit people with good arguments that lead to pride instead of submission to the scripture. Okay? So what are some good examples of this in our culture? Okay? 
so uh, cohabitation before marriage. Uh, issues with sexual orientation and identity. That is so prevalent in our culture right now where we don't agree with what the Bible says. Um, pushing boundaries with drunkenness, right? The Bible does not say that drinking alcohol is wrong, but it does say very clearly that getting drunk is a sin. And we have so many Christians nowadays who, because of false grace, want to see how close can I get to that line before it's sin, right? Or if I take one step over, well, it's just one step over, right? That's false grace. That's not the grace of God, okay? Because the grace of God leads you to righteousness, to freedom, not to something that will enslave you, right? And this verse isn't up there, but if you go down 2 Peter 2 to, in verse 19, he says, they promise you freedom, but they themselves are slave of corruption. So there's so much teaching in our world today to relax boundaries of self-control when it comes to using substances, to relax boundaries when it comes to sexual immorality. And they're saying, you can be free. These ideas are outdated. We understand the Bible now. This word doesn't really mean this. It means that and so forth. And they promise freedom when they're actually leading you to something that will bind you in sin. And that will be slavery to you, will bring no freedom whatsoever. And I want to address one specific argument that is so prevalent in our culture. It's the issue of don't judge me. If we disagree with people, especially when it comes with any area of immorality, it's automatically you're judging them and you're being critical and you're throwing stones, which a lot of people do, and it's completely wrong. But I want to address that issue biblically, okay? I'm actually going to go back to the Old Testament. Genesis 19, verse 9. Okay, so Genesis 19, verse 9. So the context for this is this Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, the angels come to rescue Lot, right? And then the guys of Sodom want to take advantage of the angels because they don't realize that they're angels. We kind of know the story. I'm not going to go into detail. Um, so Lot says uh, to them, don't do this. This isn't right. You shouldn't do this, right? Which is what I am saying here, which is what the Bible says. This isn't right. You shouldn't do this. But what do the men of Lot say to, the men of Sodom say to Lot? They say, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. So here's the thing, guys. In our culture, we think, you know, we went through World War II. We went through the Civil Rights Movement, which was amazing. Praise God. Okay? But now we've learned to never judge people about anything. So we're going to let everyone do whatever they want. And we think that this is a new idea because we've evolved and we've progressed. Right? But it's actually not a new idea. It's an argument that, was ex that existed in Sodom and Gomorrah 4,000 years ago. When Lot told them, don't do this, it's not right, what did they say? You're judging us. Stop judging us. You see, the devil's very crafty, and he's very old. And we are not, okay? He's been using the same tricks over and over and over again. 
So if you're a believer in Christ and you feel guilty when you take a stand for truth that is done in grace and in love and in wisdom, don't feel guilty. This argument is thousands of years old. This don't judge me stuff is thousands of years old. And it's the same old trick that the devil has used over and over again to lead cities and cultures and nations into depravity. And we should not feel guilty for taking a stand for truth. Now, having said that, okay, I know that this is a uh, dear issue to a lot of us. Uh, many of us know people who struggle in these areas. And anything and everything that I said here was not meant to be critical, okay? And if you feel hurt, or if some of this rubs you the wrong way, I would love for you to come talk to me. And I would love to hear you out, because you're sitting there hearing me, okay? All right, so last issue, last type of false teaching would be false religion, okay? After talk about false religion, we're going to wrap up here with a few more verses. But uh, we all have fallen pray to false grace or false righteousness in different times of our lives, and we're probably not done. I've heard a preacher say once that the path of life has two ditches on each side, right? Whichever extreme you go, false grace or false righteousness, you end up on a ditch. But sometimes you go so far one way or the other that we are no longer talking about Christianity. We're talking about something completely different that's not Christianity, so we can exaggerate the false grace or the false religion so much that we are just no longer in the gospel whatsoever, right? It's like we've left the gospel altogether. So what are some examples of that? Uh, saying things that there's no resurrection, uh, that Jesus is just one of many paths to God, that I can commit sin X and not have to repent and still go to heaven, Right? That, or, conversely, on the false righteousness, I need to perform a certain act to be saved. Or only people from denomination X preach the true gospel and are saved. Okay? Or that there is no hell. So these extremes is what I would call a false religion. A person who argues those arguments for an extended period of time, not just for a season if they're confused or something like that, I would have a hard time believing that a person is actually saved. Right? Because they are not walking in the gospel. So this is like a different matter altogether. So when we see people in those situations, whether they're believing false grace, false religion, uh, you know, false righteousness, what do we do? Jesus gave us a really good example of what to do. So if we look at Matthew 16, okay, verse 21. You know, it's interesting how Jesus responds to his disciples at different times. At one time, Peter said something. Jesus said, you heard that from the Father himself. Other times, especially when they are arguing about uh, who's the greatest among them, Jesus just corrects them. There is one time, though, that Jesus told Peter that Peter heard from Satan himself. Okay, this is the harshest Jesus ever was with Peter. Um, so from that time, so Matthew 16, verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So there's the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance, right? Um, and then what does Peter do? Peter took him aside 
and began to rebuke Jesus and say, far be it from you, Lord, this will never happen to you. I mean, the father allowing his son to go on the cross, how outrageous. God wouldn't do that to anybody. God wouldn't allow people to go through that kind of trial, right? That's a false teaching that denies the role of trials in the believer's life. And then Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. It's that same thing. Their God is their belly. Their minds are set on the things of the earth. Okay, they can't see things through God's perspective. So here's why am I reading this. Peter rebuked, or Jesus rebuked Peter very harshly. But you know what happened next? They probably just kept walking together and then had a meal that day. And then six days later, if you track the story, Peter was with Jesus on the mountain and saw Jesus shine in all glory, and the Father came down on the cloud. So here's the thing. Jesus rebuked Peter but did not reject him. Okay, we have an issue in the body of Christ at large when it comes to false teaching. We are ready to cut people off if they don't agree with us, right? And we say that's love for truth when it's really a work of arrogance and anger. And it has a whole lot more to do with the devil than it does with the Holy Spirit, right? Because God is not like that. I'm not going to read these passages, but 2 Timothy 2.25 and Galatians 6 say that we correct people with a spirit of gentleness. So when, you know, somebody rubs you the wrong way with their beliefs, we shouldn't take a baseball bat and be ready to hit them. That is not how things work. It should not how they work in the body of Christ. We need to do it with a spirit of gentleness. And the whole love of truth that people say a lot of times, that's an excuse right, to hide the arrogance and the anger and the pride because they can't bear to have anybody disagree with them. I don't want us to be like that. I want us to be a body where when we stumble, because we all will, we're all there to even rebuke each other if needed, but also pick each other up and keep walking together. We are not in the business of cutting people off for any reason, right? Um, Another thing here, what Jesus did is he used what Paul called the, the gift of discerning spirits, right? It's one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Because sometimes you have a friend who tells you something that's straight from God. Sometimes it's straight from their head. And sometimes it's straight from the devil. And the Holy Spirit can give you discernment to discern those things, right? But we never use the gift of discernment to cut people off. I'm not going to read this. But in Matthew 7, uh, Jesus said that we recognize false prophets by their fruits, not by the gift of discernment. Okay, we don't go around discerning, oh, I saw something on that person and I think they're bad. Okay, we can pray about it, but we don't call people names like false prophet or false teacher or whatever, except if there are the fruit of their lives that prove them to be that. Okay, so let's wrap up with some promises of God, okay? Uh, so we're going to do real quick here. So in dealing with false teaching, all this stuff sounds really scary, okay? But the Bible has promises to help us uh, in dealing with that fear, okay? So three promises. Second Thessalonians 2, verse 10. Paul explains why people get deceived, okay? 
he says, the people get deceived with all wicked deception uh, for those who are perishing. Because why? Because the deception was so strong. That's not what he says. Deception is never that strong. What does he say? Because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. What protects you from deception is not just, I'm just going to agree with my special little denomination here and my three favorite teachers, and as long as I do that, everything's going to be okay. That's not what protects us. What protects us partly is having a love for truth. We want you to grow in love for truth. Second promise, John 14, verse 26. Um, Jesus said, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. You know, I know a lot of people who have a lot of anxiety about the Holy Spirit and who will even say, I don't want to have anything to do with that Holy Spirit stuff. I plead you with you from the bottom of my heart, please don't say that, okay? Please don't say that you don't want to have anything to do with the Holy Spirit. He is your best friend, okay? He is your best weapon for staying on point of following Jesus. He is the best teacher that there is. You need him. You want everything he has to give you. You want to be hungry for him. You want to ask God for more of the Holy Spirit, not less. So I plead with you guys, and I understand where people are coming from, but the closer you walk with the Holy Spirit, the more he will teach you and keep you on the path of truth. The last promise, the best one perhaps, Jude, which only is one chapter, but verse 24, says, Now to him, uh, worship team, you can come up. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. God is the one who keeps us from stumbling. We don't need to have fear. We don't need to have anxiety. We need to have love for truth. And we need to walk with the Holy Spirit because he will teach us more about the word of God. And as we read and meditate and study the word uh, with the Holy Spirit, the more and more sure we are going to be in our faith. So we're going to take a little bit of time to worship before we do communion right now. And I would like to encourage all of you to ask the Lord for these two things. Ask him to give you more love for truth. Ask him to give you more of the Holy Spirit and to reveal to you any area that you haven't been walking with him, that you have listened to false teaching, so that he can uh, lead you, continue to lead you in the path of righteousness. Father, we thank you that you are good, that your love endures forever that you are able to keep us in the path of righteousness, to present us blameless and filled with joy on the day of Jesus' return. Lord, we ask that you would increase our love for truth. Lord, we want to love your word. We want to meditate on your word day and night and night and day. Lord, open up your word to us. Help us understand it. And Father, I pray, will you give us more of the Holy Spirit? Give us everything that you want to give us. Give us the full measure of the spirit that you have for us, Lord. We don't want you to hold back. We don't want to quench the spirit. 
We want to walk, Lord, by your word and by your spirit. Teach us to do that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us today. If you need prayer for anything, you can email us at prayer at cobblestonechurch.com or you can go on our website at www.cobblestonechurch.com and submit it there. We'd love to pray for you. Have a great week and God bless.